The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Bastille Day. No, not January the 6th, 2021, but July the 14th, uh, 17... 89. Thursday, July 15th, I'll have a Clubland Q&A live around the planet. Uh, I did a ton of American politics on Fox News primetime every night last week, and there's only so much a chap can take. And I had J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy and a Republican Senate candidate from Ohio, on the show uh, two nights running. And so people think I've fallen in love with him. Uh, so National Review nincompoop, uh, I think that's what he was, uh, a National Review nincompoop uh, suggested that I'd been suckered by the guy because a couple of years back, J.D. Vance had supported same-sex marriage. Well, same-sex marriage became the law of the land under a decision authored by rock-ribbed Ronald Reagan Supreme Court nominee Anthony Kennedy. So whoop de doo Whatever you feel about it, it's here a while yet, thanks to all those rube conservatives who think judicial appointments are the way to save a dying republic, as opposed to being an almost laughably extreme definition of playing defence. Uh, I don't fall in love. Uh, well, I do, but uh, normally with hoochie-coochie dancers uh, rather than politicians. I'm a believer in the Milton Friedman rule that you don't wait for the right people to do the right thing. You create the conditions whereby the wrong people are obliged to do the right thing. And in between elections, what matters is saying the right thing. Mrs. Thatcher's dictum. First you win the argument, then you win the election. But you can't win the argument if you're like Mitch McConnell and so many other Republicans, and you never make an argument about anything that bloody matters. So J.D. Vance is one of the few Republican candidates out there right now making an argument, and it goes like of this. Yeah, so I think that we made a decision in this country, um, and it was unfortunately a bipartisan consensus, that we would trade good manufacturing jobs in places like Ohio for cheap garbage from China. That was like the fundamental trade that we decided to make. And what was supposed to happen is that the people who were displaced by having their jobs shipped off to China were supposed to retrain. They were supposed to go from coal miners or steel mill workers, become computer programmers, and everything was supposed to work out. Well, of course, that didn't happen, right? It turns out you can't just automatically replace or adjust millions and millions of workers who have been displaced. So you have communities like mine that have been decimated. Uh, they've lost a lot of jobs. You have a lot of families whose fathers, because a lot of these manufacturing workers, a disproportionate share of the manufacturing workers were men who lost their jobs. So you have a lot of families where fathers lost jobs. That means fathers who are less able to contribute at home. So you have family chaos and family dysfunction coming out of that. You, of course, have the opioid epidemic, which is closely related to globalization. And even somewhat cases, the opioids are coming in from places like China and Mexico. Um, and I, I just think it's been a terrible trade. Basically, what we did is we gave up healthy, stable American families and communities so that we could enable the Chinese to sell us a bunch of stuff, most of which we didn't need. The other thing about this that isn't talked about enough, I, th I think on you know, our side, I you know, call it economic nationalism, whatever you want to call it, is 
To have a really good economy, it needs to be innovative. It needs to be developing new technologies. And what we're finding out is that having shipped all of our industrial base off to China, they're starting to become a more innovative society than we are. They're starting to develop the new technologies in robotics and pharmaceuticals and other things. And, and we're sitting here unable to be the world leader in innovation because we gave all of our capability to countries that hate us. That last bit's one I do from time to time, usually with reference to the spinning Jenny. You're on the factory floor and something falls over and you see it and you get an idea, as James Hargreaves did in uh, whatever it was, 1764 in uh, Oswald Twistle. But if the factory floors around the back of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you won't be there to see it. Uh, someone else will see something fall over and get the idea. Now, to me, uh, more generally, J.D. Vance is talking about something important and distilling it very uh, effectively to its essence. We gave up healthy communities in Ohio and New Hampshire and all kinds of other places. We gave up healthy communities for a bunch of cheap crap from China. It profit a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for Walmart... Uh, J.D. Vance is doing what Trump did in 2015. He's putting existential issues on the table in a way that too many Republican candidates don't. It sounds like a small thing, just mentioning this or that subject. But that's the depth of the peril we're in, that just mentioning it in tele-interviews, in radio interviews, is a big deal in the face of the silence of Conservatism, Inc. China is the dominant global power because the United States political class made it so. Uh, it didn't have to win a war. We just handed it the keys uh, to the global economy. And we made ordinary Americans, their families, their communities, the first victims of that stupid non-deal deal, and we now have to figure out a way to reverse our own error. Now, is J.D. Vance going to sell me out and screw me over? I don't know. I find American politicians generally weird, even when not totally malignant. And I'm sure uh, for those who've known him all these years uh, and uh, who think of him as a writer and a money guy, uh, just tiptoeing his way in to the cesspool of politics uh, will change him. But I don't care about any of that because I don't fall in love with politicians. I look at them very coolly. And uh, if you want to talk 2022 horse race stuff, bugger off. There are plenty of other venues for that. I hate the horse race stuff. It's a waste of time. I want issues. It's because if you talk the right issues, you can find the right candidates. If you just talk candidates, you get the big nothing. Uh, so a guy who says we traded healthy communities for cheap garbage from China is uh, performing a useful service, whether he's running for Senate or not, because he's putting the central issue of our time on the table. 30 years ago, the West won the Cold War and then proceeded in its complacency to lose a much cooler war with China. I'm interested in people who want to reverse that. The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content.
If a church burns in the forest and nobody cares, does it even blaze? Here's Andrew. Thank you, Mark. I thought the story of the week in Canada would be the continued desecration of Catholic churches across the country. But the real story is that this is happening and nobody seems to care. By my count, about 27 churches have been given the new woke treatment being covered in paint, burned to the ground, or otherwise vandalized. 27. More than two dozen churches, almost exclusively Catholic, and the intelligentsia's response has been virtually nil. It took Justin Trudeau a week after the first vandalism to say anything at all, and when he did, it was a half-hearted criticism at best. Since that comment a little over a week ago, more churches have been vandalized, many of them, by the way, on Indigenous reservations serving Indigenous congregations. And still, that's not enough to save them from the woke mob that thinks the Catholic Church needs to be punished for past treatment of Indigenous peoples. And when I take aim at the relative silence from the so-called thought leaders of Canada, perhaps that is smart, because when several of them have opened their mouths, what they've said has only been adding fuel to the fire, in a literal and figurative sense. There's the executive director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Harsha Walia, who says we should burn them all down, only to be met not by condemnation, but accolades from her supposed liberty-loving colleagues. And more recently, there's Gerald Butts, formerly the principal advisor to Justin Trudeau, who said it's, quote, understandable, unquote, the people would want to burn churches down. My temptation in all of this is to do the whataboutism. I can point to the fact that when one mosque a couple of years ago had spray paint on the side of it, Justin Trudeau put out a statement condemning it. When a single synagogue was vandalized a couple of years ago, Justin Trudeau did the same. Yet dozens of churches receive barely more than lip service. But I realize that pointing out that inconsistency is completely useless. Our late dear friend Kathy Shadel said it best. Liberals, it's different when they do it. It's harder to find truer words than that in the face of these mass vandalisms and arsons. The people who should be speaking up to condemn it are silent. The people who do speak up are actually cheering it on. And in the media, there have been a few columnists that have taken aim at this, but for the most part, the media is treating this as a local news story, no different than if a convenience store in Red Deer, Alberta, happened to have been robbed on some Tuesday night. One Canadian columnist, Danielle Hamamjian, a woman of color herself, had pointed out that there was a bit of an inconsistency in how Trudeau was viewing the desecration of dozens of churches compared to a single mosque not that long ago. This was an obvious point that should have been an uncontroversial point. But the response from one other Canadian columnist was that, well, it's different because Catholics are not an oppressed identity in Canada. Therefore, they're not allowed to be frustrated when their churches are burned to the ground, evidently. And it was Miss Hamamjian who was forced to delete her tweet in the face of the mob for daring to suggest that perhaps we should stand up for all places of worship and their right to exist without being burned to the ground. It's difficult to extract any conclusion from this, but that the left is very much celebrating the dismantling of the Catholic Church, the destruction of churches themselves. Justin Trudeau has jumped in demanding that Pope Francis comes to Canada to apologize on Canadian soil for the Catholic Church's role in this. 
And oddly, Justin Trudeau has never been criticized by the media for perhaps stoking some of this anti-Catholic hate. I'm not a Catholic myself, but I'm part of the old-fashioned view that we shouldn't be going around burning churches under the auspices that this is done in the name of justice rather than something that creates injustice. Back to you, Mark. To modify Ernest Hemingway, how did Canada go morally bankrupt? First gradually, then suddenly. And with the Dominion Day statue toppling not only of Queen Victoria, but of the reigning monarch too, we seem to be moving into the suddenly phase. What is wokery at heart? We talk about virtue signalling, but signalling to whom? To what? Well, to the future. Andrew notes the difference between the politico-media furor over one mosque defacing versus the silence over dozens of church burnings. That's because, in a crude sense, the mosque and its adherents are presumed to be part of the future, and the Catholic churches aren't. In fast-changing societies, the past crumbles uh, before your eyes, as on the streets of American and Canadian cities this last year. And given the demographic transformation caused by mass immigration all over the Western world, why would you expect a nation's inheritance to have any purchase on people ever more disconnected from it, and indeed taught from kindergarten to loathe it? The calculation is exactly the same as it was for those Frenchmen who didn't storm the Bastille in 1789. What's the future? And how do I ensure there's a place for me in it? Uh, the Bolsheviks understood this very clearly right from the beginning. Their preferred term for the Russian nobility was the former people. It's not just that you're out of fashion, the books of your history are banned, the statues of your forebears are smashed, but that you yourself, right now, today, flesh and blood, as you nevertheless appear to be, are also consigned to the past, to the former people. Who aren't the former people? Well, uh, a Muslim, a black, an indigenous person, an illegal alien doesn't need to be woke. They're natural-born woke, uh, to put it in U.S. constitutional terms, uh, which is actually the way to put it, as we are, in effect, building a new constitutional order here. But if you're the very acme of white privilege, like... Uh, Justin Trudeau, you need to be naturalized. Now, sometimes you can do it by becoming a lesbian or a transgender, but that requires a bit of effort, uh, not all of which may be entirely congenial to you. Staying silent on the burning of the past requires no effort at all, and a bit of mild support for the great bonfire of our inheritance is an easy way for white liberals uh, as they see it, to get a piece of the future. One thinks of Tariq Aziz, who was a very famous man at the beginning of this century. He was Saddam Hussein's deputy prime minister, born Mikhail Yuhana, an Assyrian and a Christian, as you could tell from his name. So he Arabized and Islamized his name to Tariq Aziz, so you couldn't tell that. He didn't want to end up one of the former people and de-Christianizing his name was a critical step to becoming a plausible collaborator with Saddam. We are in culturally revolutionary times rather than traditional Bastille storming mode, but the same considerations apply. A tweeter called uh, Peter Nimitz, uh, I don't know anything about him, but he put it very pithily the other day 
when he said that white liberals are moralizing their dispossession. One might add that consciously or not, they're doing so in order that they personally won't be dispossessed. They'll retain their sinecures and privileges. But you don't have to be cynical about it. That's where the moralizing comes in. Hectoring the Queen to apologize for a residential school system presided over by Justin's dad whose kid isn't being called on to uh, apologise. Hectoring the Queen does nothing for Indians, Inuit or anyone, but it provides a convenient moral cover for total civilizational surrender. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Dan, an Ontario member of the Mark Stein Club, writes, While I enjoy Douglas Murray, Victor Davis Hanson, and many other based conservatives, their constant use of the obligatory, of course, January the 6th was appalling, opening caveat, is no different from, of course, Trump. These same academics will sing the praise of the defenestration of Prague as being a seminal moment for freedom, but are oblivious or afraid of stating the obvious for a group of people acting within the framework that their entire democracy had been hijacked. It was the most peaceful reaction in history. Uh, you're right on on um, that, Dan. And, uh, and by the way, this would be a better world if all protests passed off as peacefully as uh, January the 6th did, including all the nightly riots in god-awful Democrat cities across the United States. Anyway, uh, to all that, Kate Smythe, the doyen of uh, Australian Stein Clubbers, adds, uh, the rights attack of the vapours over, quote, political violence on January the 6th contributed to the success of the real insurrection that continues to play out. Having publicly condemned the guys taking selfies in Nancy's office, the conservative priority is to submit to tyranny with grace and composure. P.S. Many of the January 6th pearl clutchers were the same people who praised pro-democracy Hong Kongers for their forced entry into the Legislative Council using battering rams and hammers in 2019. Uh, Kate makes... Uh, an excellent point that I want to come back to. But uh, before I do, in fairness, I haven't personally heard uh, Douglas Murray and Victor Davis Hanson do that throat clearing. I got used to uh, irritating throat clearing in Canada during my free speech battles. Uh, well, obviously, I regard Stein as an absolutely appalling blah, 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 blah. But, and I grew mighty weary of that rote preamble uh, before the but uh, but covers all of them. I did uh, hear Molly Hemingway say something of the sort when I interviewed her on telly uh, for the semi-anniversary of January 6th on uh, Fox News last week. But I'm not clear, uh, as I think of it, whether Molly was deploring the day in a more utilitarian sense, uh, because January the 6th had been so predictably weaponized by the Democrats and the media and the deep state to serve their needs. Uh, but the only reason those guys were able to weaponize it so effectively is because the right had handed them 
Within 20 minutes of the thing coming up on television, the right had handed them the great gift of agreeing with the left's narrative. And because the right agreed with the left's narrative, the deep state was able to delegitimize half the American people and launch a domestic war on non-existent terror. After watching Fox News for a couple of hours and hearing all that crap uh, about the, quote, citadel of democracy, here's what I said live on telly, live on Fox, just as the alleged insurrection was sputtering to a halt. Sorry if I'm yelling a bit here, but I was steamed. It's always interesting to me that people are surprised when a tactic that's proved effective for one group of people is then suddenly taken up by other people of whom they don't approve. And so I've listened to all this blather for whatever it is, six or seven hours now, where people are saying, starting with the vice president down, oh, this is not who we are. Have you switched on a TV since Memorial Day? This is exactly who we are. Right. Uh, so it's okay, it's okay to burn Wendy's in Atlanta. It's okay to loot Macy's. It's okay to incinerate a precinct house in Minneapolis. It's okay to set up the Chaz Chop Autonomous Republic. Uh, but uh, but suddenly you expect the capital of the United States, the uh, United States Congress, to be immune from this. That's completely preposterous. Uh, either we have equality before the law and a, uh, a Wendy's franchisee is entitled to have his property rights as respected as the United States Congress. I've, all, I've listened to this stuff too. D Chad Pergram, I love, I love him and I love his reports. And he says uh, this, nothing has happened uh, since uh, the British burned down the White House in 1814. So we're supposed to take history and the majesty of the Capitol seriously now. Uh, Nancy Pelosi told us she didn't care about old statues. Mitch McConnell said he didn't care about the names of military bases. So suddenly this old building uh, is, is important now. You can't have that. There's been a complete uh, collapse of equality before the law now. Uh, for ever since the COVID began, basically, there are some groups that have enjoyed the license to go out and loot and burn every night in American cities. And the more they are not subject to any laws, uh, the more onerous the burden that falls upon the law abiding so that they can't go out and open their hair salon. They can't have granny round for Christmas dinner. So we've got a completely bifurcated system uh, where the less law that applies to one one group, the more micro-regulated the lives of the other group are. And at some point, that is to give. And whoever is behind this, uh, to a certain degree, that gave uh, today in Washington. That's me on January the 6th. Me on the morning after. Quote, I choke on the sanctimonious drivel of the continuing coverage. The political class, represented by a speaker who flies home to San Francisco on her own government plane, has been largely insulated from the pathologies they have loosed upon the land. For a few hours yesterday, they weren't. Unquote. Uh, you'll find that at uh, Stein Online. Headline from the Washington Times, January the 8th. You'll find this at the Washington Times. Headline, Mark Stein rips media's citadel of democracy framing of capital. It's a citadel of crap. Now, I'm an effete foreigner who likes show tunes. And after Russia's death, it's no secret that there were radio programmers who thought listeners would appreciate something a bit more obviously all-American and red-blooded. 
Uh, so we get shows on so-called conservative radio that are tonally butch, with hard-driving rock bumper music, and then hosts who meekly comply with the likes of that cumulus radio vice president who said they'd be fired unless they ceased talking about electoral fraud. Whereas, if you recall, I just pissed all over that cumulus guy through January and February on Rush. Tonally, Butch. They have hard rock bumper music and easy listening opinions. Uh, this would be a better world in every sense with easy listening bumper music and hard rock opinions. Dan and Kate are absolutely correct. Why did the right immediately sign on to the left's false narrative? The protest was whatever it was. The effective ongoing weaponization would not have been possible without what Miss Smythe calls the January 6th pearl clutches. Um, as I always say, unless you're prepared to surrender everything, surrender nothing. And that goes double for so-called media narratives. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Peace in Ireland, corruption in Delaware, communists in China. It's July 1921. Attended by the Earl of Middleton and other prominent unionists from the south, Sir James Craig, Premier of the new statelet of Northern Ireland, was not present, apparently because his invitation was wrongly addressed. The Prime Minister of South Africa, General Smuts, was there and met with both Republicans and unionists in an effort to create the conditions for talks in London. The Mansion House Conference concluded with an announcement from both sides of the Irish Sea of a meeting between Messrs de Valera and Lloyd George at Westminster as Mr de Valera wrote to the Prime Minister, Sir, the desire you expressed on the part of the British government to end the centuries of conflict between the peoples of these two islands and to establish relations of neighbourly harmony is the genuine desire of the people of Ireland. I have consulted with my colleagues in regard to the invitation you have sent me. In reply, I desire to say that I am ready to meet and discuss with you on what basis such a conference as that proposed can reasonably hope to achieve the object desired. His Majesty's government then announced, in accordance with the Prime Minister's offer and Mr de Valera's reply, arrangements are being made for hostilities to cease from Monday next. So, a promising week for peace in Ireland. However, just as before the truce between government and Republican forces was due to take effect, an Irish Republican army cell attacked a police truck in Belfast and killed an officer, and in retaliation, Unionist supporters have attacked Northern Catholics, killing 17 civilians. Every mother's son will listen, every Irish heart will Realized our dreams of long ago. Just to prove you love your silence. Pull that car car. 
Empire, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. British troops have arrived in Upper Silesia in support of the French military occupation there to maintain order between the German and Polish populations. 500 Koreans are reported to be dead at the hands of Japanese troops who claim the Koreans had become Bolsheviks loyal to the Soviet Union. smiled on Mongolia with some considerable help from Russian Bolsheviks and the Mongols are once again free of China. However, the hereditary monarch, the Bogd Khan, is viewed with suspicion by Mongol revolutionaries who are said to regard him as just as much of an obstacle to their plans as the Chinese are. In other developments, reports are circulating that with the help of Moscow, a communist party has been founded in China itself. The Sheik of Araby, at night when you're asleep, into your tent he'll creep. If you're a Norwegian or a Spaniard or some such and you don't care for that and biff him on the nose, any subsequent court case in most of Araby uh, will be conducted in a special tribunal of non-Arab judges operating your own country's laws. This is the so-called capitulation system. Uh, introduced reluctantly by the Ottoman Empire. In British Egypt, the locals never cared for it, and London recently agreed to modify the arrangements. Now, under the new so-called agreement between Great Britain and Sweden relating to the suppression of the capitulations in Egypt, Swedish nationals will enjoy the protection of English law in Egyptian courts. In North America, the U.S. and Canadian Joint Commission has reported back on proposals to join the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean via canal. The cost of construction is estimated at a quarter of a billion dollars. Delaware is a tiny state, but that doesn't mean it can't compete with the biggest when it comes to corruption. In a move being mocked by journalists as the dirty deal, freshman Democrat Senator Josiah Wolcott has resigned from the United States Senate to become Chancellor of Delaware's Court of Chancery. This surprise move permits Republican Governor William Denny to fill the Democrat Senate seat uh, with a Republican, T. Coleman DuPont of the state's dominant family and the man believed to be behind the dirty deal. 
With the new Senator DuPont joining their ranks, the United States Senate now has a 60 to 36 Republican majority. In sports news, the Wimbledon Tennis Championships have concluded. The South African Brian Norton fought his way through all the preliminary rounds, the quarterfinals, the semifinals, to win the so-called all-comers final. At that point, the American Big Bill Tilden stepped in in the so-called challenge round and defeated the South African to take the gentleman's singles title back to the United States. There are calls for the system to be changed in time for next year's championships by eliminating the challenge option and requiring all players to compete through all rounds. Cows Week is one of the most popular regattas in the world. While racing off the Isle of Wight, the Earl of Craven fell off his yacht, the Sylvia, and disappeared. The fourth Earl's body has now washed ashore and he has lost not just the race, but his life. Jack Dempsey delivered a fourth round knockout to Georges Carpentier in front of 90,000 boxing fans in Jersey City and many thousands more listening radiophonically throughout the northeastern United States. That was not the match's principal newsworthiness, however, rather the 12 round fight was the first million-dollar gate in the history of American boxing. Meanwhile, the world's first Negro heavyweight champ, Jack Johnson, has been released from federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, after serving 10 months of his sentence for transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. The King of Denmark is also the King of Iceland, and on a royal visit to Reykjavik, King Christian X has proclaimed the establishment of the country's very first order of chivalry, the Icelandic Order of the Falcon. Philip, Prince of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, was by no means the most important Middle European royal scion, but he was at the heart of very consequential events in continental history. It was Prince Philip who, on January the 30th, 1889, discovered the bodies of his brother-in-law, the Habsburg Crown Prince Rudolf, and his teenage mistress, Mary von Wetzera, at the Royal Hunting Lodge at Mailing. The lovers had died a double suicide, or perhaps a murder-suicide, that with hindsight can be said to have foreshadowed what would become obvious by the time of the recent world war, that the Austro-Hungarian Empire would not outlast Rudolf's father, the Emperor Franz Josef. Like his imperial majesty, Prince Philip outlived his own son, Prince Leopold, whose death has echoes of Prince Rudolf's, albeit far more protracted and violent. In 1915, Prince Leopold summoned his mistress to pay her off with four million kroner in lieu of the marriage his father had forbidden. Instead, she fired five of her six bullets into his chest and then flung acid in his face. She saved the last bullet for herself. The screams of the prince roused the neighbours and brought the police, who found the mistress half-naked and dead, and Leopold howling in agony with a gaping eye socket and the flesh of his face burning away. He lingered in half-life for another six months. 
His father, Prince Philip, has now joined his lost son and brother-in-law among the great majority, dead at the age of 77. And that's the way of the world, July 1921. This is Mark Stein. Have you ever been bewitched? Not by some cackling old crone flying around on a broomstick, but by a look, a smile, a toss of the hair, love as enchantment, a spell, a magical seduction. That's our theme on Stein's Song of the Week this week, and we're taking lessons from the masters, Frank Sinatra and Bart Simpson. Hope you'll join me for some heady, intoxicating music and lyrics, Sunday at 5.30 on Serenade Radio. Another Bastille Day has come and gone, but let's have something a little French. And by a little French, I mean extremely little. Uh, The singer here is Michel Louvain, who died just a few weeks ago in Montreal. He was from Thetford Mines, Quebec, a somewhat unprepossessing town in an otherwise beautiful province. This is a fine record of Monsieur Louvain's, uh, although I hope you'll forgive a few crackles from a well-worn LP right at the beginning. So the singer's a Quebecer, the composer is English, Hayden Wood, but the lyricist uh, was a bona fide citizen of the French Republic, albeit born in Algiers, Eddie Marnay. He was a hugely successful French songwriter and producer and a big part of Céline Dion's early francophone career. Céline adored him and named one of her sons after him. I adored him too, not quite to the same child-naming degree as Céline, uh, but I had the pleasure of telling Monsieur Marnet that this lyric is one of my all-time favourites. I never tire of it. Là-bas, 
sur les roses de ce temps-là, sur les roses de ce temps-là. The late Michel Louvain and Danson La Rose with Eddie Marnay's lovely new lyric to an old English tune. Dire que cet air nous semble vieux, aujourd'hui il me semble nouveau. Et puis surtout, c'était toi et moi. Ces deux mots ne vieillissent pas. And I agree with Monsieur Marnay on that. Thursday, Clubland Q&A, live around the planet, 4 p.m. Eastern in North America. That's 9 p.m. London time. You'll have to work it out from there. I'll be taking questions from Mark Stein club members all over the globe. And I hope you'll join me and, uh, and shoot me an interesting question. Until then, stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.